I want you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. So we're just going to do a little studying around a subject that I believe is very important. Jonathan Edwards, I believe it was, had a sermon he called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene, forerunner of Jesus Christ, and he's talking to the people who came to the baptism that believed on him, on Jesus Christ, and they were baptized. But they were baptized not to be saved. They believed the promise that he said concerning Jesus Christ, that the Messiah is coming, and they were to believe on him. And so um, other people came to the baptism to see what was going on. So he says in verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to, and here's the topic that I want to talk about this morning, flee from the wrath to come. Whatever it is, you should flee from the wrath to come. Now, just dying isn't that much of a wrath. I mean, people die every day. People you know and love, everybody dies. But to flee from the wrath to come. Then you look down here in verse uh, 12, talking about Jesus Christ, who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Those who believe on Christ are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Those who do not believe on Christ are baptized with fire. And that's not the Holy Ghost. That's a literal fire, the lake of fire. There's a lot of people talking about, you got to get the baptism of fire. You can have it. Because <laughs> I don't want it. So you look there in verse 12, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Explaining what he's talking about. So there's a, a wrath to flee. Flee from the wrath to come. Look there in the book of Revelation chapter 6. Revelation and chapter 6. And look in verse 16. So here in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, he's talking about something that's coming down the road. It doesn't look like it's a very pleasant thing. So he says in verse 16, And said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So the Bible says in Matthew, flee from the wrath to come. And then God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth. Now, this wrath that God's talking about, what does he really mean by that? And what is going to happen? And we're told to flee from the wrath to come. So you're right there in Revelation. So look in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And you'll notice that when Jesus comes back to the earth in power and great glory and every eye will see him, he tells us something else here in the book of Revelation chapter 19. He says here in uh, verse 15, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. 
What happened to this God of love? What happened to this little sweet little Jesus boy born in a manger? He wouldn't hurt a fly. And yet the Bible calls it the wrath of the Lamb. Now this Lamb has grown up and Jesus is coming back. And he has the wrath of God to be poured out upon this earth. Now, there's a few things that we need to always keep in mind about this anger and the wrath of God. It's like having a cup or a bowl. The Bible talks about the cup of his indignation, talks about the bowls of the wrath of God that he's going to pour out upon the earth. But take your Bible and look there with me in the book of Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. God doesn't do everything right away. God is a very patient God. He was talking to Abraham. He was telling them about some things that were going to take place with the nation of Israel. Going to be down into a country that's going to be there for 400 years. And then God's going to bring them out. But he makes this statement here in uh, verse 13. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. So God's telling Abraham this. Moses wrote it after it all done happened. But Abraham knew it. They would be down there for four hundred years in Egypt. And then he says in verse 14, And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. And so he died, about 175 years old. I'd say that's pretty fair. But then he says, but in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. God says he's going to bring judgment upon those in the land of Canaan. But you see, God's wrath is not yet full. It's not to the point where God is ready to destroy, to wipe them out. But God is patient. But the Bible talks about when the cup is full, when the bowl is full. Now, you and I need to understand there's God is a patient God, a loving God, a wonderful God. But God because he is God, hates sin. Because he hates sin, he judges sin. And the Bible says that he is going to pour out his wrath because of sin. So when you think about it, what is wrath? Wrath is God's holy anger toward sin. Wrath is God's holy anger toward sin. Now, the question comes down is this. Does God pour out His wrath upon God's children? Because there's many verses that talks about the wrath of God. And so some people believe that God is going to pour out His wrath even upon His children. And when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ and you're going to be judged by God, and you're going to, you know, have to give an account of things done in the body, whether good or bad, you're going to have to suffer the consequences. God's going to pour out His wrath. God's really going to be angry at some of His children on the day that we have to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. 
So, is that true? I don't believe God pours out His wrath upon His children. I don't believe God does that. So God's righteous anger is used over 20 different ways explained in Hebrew words in the Old Testament. And so some of those words he uses is like a consuming fire. And um, he talks about it being burning. And he talks about it in various ways of a kindled, fierce, which we've already seen. Talks about the fury, indignation. All these are terms that are used to show God's anger towards sin. Now, in the New Testament, there's two words that are used. One is org, and the other one is thymos. One is used 36 times. The other one, thymos, is used 18 times. One word refers to anger as a slow burn. And then there's another word, thymos, that uses uh, anger as a boom, immediate, a burst, now. Have you ever seen people who have the slow burn and those that are explosive? Both anger. One is controlled because they're probably trying to count to ten. And then you don't know what they're going to do. So you're trying to have that slow burn. And sometimes you just sit there and you can see like a teapot, you know, the steam starts coming out. And you don't know, is it going to explode? Now, you know, if you're wise, the Bible says, know thy wife. It means you should know what causes them to explode and then do it <laughs> and avoid it. A sign of wisdom is knowing what tees them off, sets that slow burn or that explosion. And men have it too, don't you? So everybody experiences anger. God has anger. But remember, God cannot have anger and wrath when there is no sin. Wrath is not an attribute of God as part of his attributes like God is love. But that's something he's always had. That is part of his character. Anger, wrath is part because sin came to be. And because of sin, then God has anger. And because of anger, God has wrath. So wrath has not always been around. God has wrath, and God can demonstrate his wrath. But God did not always have wrath because there was not always sin. Now, let me just read this to you. Wrath against sin cannot be an eternal attribute of God's character because there can be no wrath towards sin when no sin existed. I kind of like the old Schofield Reference Bible. You'll hear people talk about it and knock it and all this. That, that's fine. Go ahead. I've been using it for 55 years. I love the book. I love most of the notes. The notes are not inspired of God. But this is what C.I. Schofield said. A Christian cannot be a subject of divine wrath, whether that wrath be poured out on earth or reserved to the lake of fire. The child of God needs to understand Jesus Christ took God's wrath against all my sins on the cross. He took my wrath 
Therefore, I do not believe God pours out his wrath upon his children. Now, when we talk about chastening or discipline, it's always because of love. To restore us, to get us back to the Lord. Wrath, once delivered, is not for the purpose of restoration. It's God's judgment that falls, and it's too late. Once the judgment falls, there's judgment. And it's because of God's anger, and he pours out his wrath. Now, if you, for example, have never trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. But he says also that the wrath of God abideth on him that does not believe. The wrath has not yet fell, but if you do not accept Christ as your Savior, the wrath of God will fall. And you will be in a literal fire burning hell for all eternity. That is why he says, flee from the wrath to come. In every person's life, every person's going to die. Now, the wrath of God will never touch me because somebody accepted it for me. But if you never trusted Christ as your Savior, the wrath of God is going to fall. It's just like the righteousness of God is unto all but it's only upon those that believe. So when you believe on Christ, you have eternal life. He goes on to say this, Even if it were a matter of inference and mere argumentation, one might ask why divine wrath should be poured out upon the bride of the Son of God. Can you picture Christ is going to take and marry this beautiful bride, right after he beats the tar out of her and give her many stripes. I don't think so. I don't think a Christian is going to be beaten with many or few, any stripes. We may not have all the honor that we could have had, or all the dressed in the righteous acts of all the saints that we ought to have had and could have had, but I don't believe that the judgment seat of Christ is to be something that we are afraid of happening and afraid to stand. We may be ashamed, but we not to fear a punishment by God upon any of his children. Otherwise, all of God's children will be scared to death for the Lord to come back and take us to the judgment seat of Christ. I believe it is a blessed hope and not a place of terror. Anyway, he goes on to say, Every sin of every member of that body was laid on Jesus Christ. And if some ingenuity of sophistry, which is nothing more than exercise in logic, people trying to use logic to explain everything, should seem to offer such explanation of so inconceivable a thing as that God should visit the second time wrath upon those for whom His Son has borne wrath, it would still remain to answer the obvious fact that no part of the biblical record mentions a church or a Christian as an object of God's wrath. Don't that make you breathe a little bit better? All of your sins have been paid for. You will not be punished because of sin. In this world, you may 
commit sins and there will be crimes that you will commit and government will say that it will take out upon you the wrath of government and you can suffer great consequences. But don't blame that on God. You did that. A man by the name of J.E. Strombeck in a book he wrote called So Great Salvation, he said this, the saved person is unalterably the object of the love of God, and God deals with him on that basis alone. Let no one think that God ever becomes angry with one who has been saved. There is no wrath of God at any time upon those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. He said, what if I do something wrong? He still deals with you on the basis of love, and you're his child. And he will come after you. He will seek you. He may put a hedge of thorns about you, but it's all because he loves you, and he does it because he wants to restore you to where you ought to be. He wants you to walk with him because he cares about you. He wants you to abide in him. But what God does in the Christian's life is not the wrath of God, where God is, he may take you home, and he can allow that to take place. But now, a man by the name of Tom Stiglitz, he said this, and I kind of agree with him, so I want to share it with you. He wrote, God hated, God hated our sins so much that he poured out his wrath on our substitute. Look at it. God hated our sins so much that God poured out his wrath on our substitute, which was Christ. Then he wrote, God loved us so much that he poured out his wrath upon our substitute. He loved us so much, he hated sin so much, that he poured out his wrath upon our substitute. And he loved us so much that he poured out his wrath upon our substitute. So we have a substitute that took and became sin for us, paid our sin debt for us, so that he doesn't have to pour out his wrath upon his children. Take your Bible and turn to the book of James in chapter 1. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and look in verse 19. You'll notice where he says in verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to burn, slow to wrath. But the word means slow to burn. Have you ever heard of the being long-suffering? See, some people are short-fused. You light them, and there's no time between the time you lit the fuse and the time they explode. God talks about being long-suffering, long-fused, so that it can build and you have time to get control, so that you don't say or do something that you shouldn't say. Isn't it a shame that sometimes you explode and then later on you wish you hadn't have done it? Isn't the words, I was wrong, I'm sorry, so difficult to say? It's supposed to be so painful that you never want to have to do it again. And that's why slow to anger, slow to wrath, so that you don't do that on somebody else. So 
as you read it, you kind of get maybe just a little bit of an idea about this anger that we can have. Can Christians have anger? Yes. But your anger is not to lead you to have wrath. And there's a reason why, because of the consequences. Take your Bible and turn to Psalm 78. Psalms 78. It is right after Psalms 77. Psalm 78, and look in verse 38. And verse 38 says, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity, destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away, and did not stir up all his wrath. See, God has wrath, and God has anger because of what people do, and it brings upon them a judgment. Now, he talks about this down through here, about how many times he bent over backwards for the nation of Israel. And you would think they would have learned their lesson, but have you ever had children that you could spank them, and then they'd turn around and around and do it again? It's like it didn't make any difference. Of course, today we don't chasten our children like that because... They're not that bad. But the Bible does say about this chastening business. But those that are God's children, God chastens. It's not spoken of so much as like God is going to pour out his wrath upon you. No, he poured out the wrath of my sin upon Jesus Christ. Now, in Jonah chapter 4 in verse 2, I, I want you to see that. I think that's an important verse. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2. And you'll notice there in verse 2, he makes this statement, Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, Oh, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying? Isn't it what I told you? In other words, I, I told you so. I told you. I knew this is where you'd be. O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth thee of the evil. See, God was going to judge them, but the people did what God wanted them to do. They believed on him. And so the Bible tells us that God has this anger, there's this slow burn, that God is patient. But also, God, see, has a bowl, or the cup of his indignation. And God is very slow to anger. But it builds and builds and builds. And when the cup gets full, it's going to overflow. When it gets full, and I don't know what it would take in everybody's life, when God says, that's enough. Now, God may do the same thing when it comes to our disobedience. God's children not walking with the Lord as we ought to. God can chasten us, but isn't God patient with his children? Gracious with his children? Does God give you a little leeway so that you can make some decisions on your own? Doesn't he make the will of God wide enough that you can do all the right you want to within that framework? 
But no, it's not good enough for most children. They want to go on the other side. Regardless of all the right you can do, regardless of all the fruit you could eat in that garden, no, you had to do that one little thing that he says not to do. Regardless of how much of the will of God we can have and we can rejoice in, no, we want to do that thing he says I can't do. And just to show you that I can do it and get away with it, I'll just do it real quick and get back. But the only thing is, is people don't understand. You ever heard the story about the tar baby? You get stuck. Sin is a trap. And that's what it does to most of God's children. Now, go to your Bible, to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Revelation, chapter 14. Just know that the Bible says that it's coming. The wrath of God is coming. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, the very moment your heart stops and there's nobody there to revive it, it's over. This is Revelation chapter 14. And look there in verse 10. Get what he says. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture. That means is no dilution with mercy. In other words, God's going to pour it out and there's no mercy. Which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Do you like the definition of the wrath of God? This is the, what happens when the wrath of God falls. The person that does not know the Lord, the wrath of God isn't going to be purdy. And there will be no mercy. See, there's mercy until the cup is full, until the bowl is full. But once it's poured out, there is no forgiveness. There is no backing up. It's being poured. Judgment is being received. And people are not going to like the consequences. You see, if this wasn't true, then we didn't need anyone to come into the world and down the cross and pay for our sins. Because there'd be no consequences. But there is an angry God, and he pours out his wrath. And it's final. And this is what he's going to do. Another verse I want you to look at is Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. And look in verse 19. Verse 19. Where he says, And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine, the fierceness of his wrath. To see, God is patient. He's long-suffering. But we often say, you know, if God did what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah, don't you think that God must judge that same sin today? They may enjoy what they're doing today and get all the laws passed that says it's okay. They're married now. That doesn't alter the wrath of God. It's still the wrath of God. And just because man makes a law, if it breaks God's law, it's not a justifiable law. And they can force anything they want upon us, but that doesn't make it right. Right. 